Air superiority will be a defining factor in a war between the United States and China. This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome everyone, I am Matt Parker. Today's brief, we're going to highlight the U.S. Air Force and its preparations it's been making for any potential conflict with China. You know, as we continue this modern warfare series, I'm going to be pointing out the preparations that China has been making to combat the United States, but then we're going to pivot into the few areas that the U.S. Air Force uh, has been begun to emphasize as it's shifting away from that counterinsurgency mission it's been conducting for the last 20 years in uh, the Middle East and now focusing on that near-peer competition specifically against China. And we're going to highlight some of the advanced technology that the Air Force is prioritizing for the next large-scale war. Before we get into it, let me take an ad break and we'll get to work. Welcome back everyone. So let's get started with highlighting what China has been doing to make preparations for any type of large-scale war, specifically with the United States. And this is a, a General Mark Kelly, who is the commander of the Air Force's Air Combat Command. And he was explaining the importance of the future fighter roadmap for preparing for a conflict with China. Uh, according to national interest, General Kelly says, quote, we went to Afghanistan 20 years ago and we focused on providing unwavering and world-class support to a counterinsurgency in a very permissive environment. And during that same 20 years, China organized, trained, and equipped its military, singularly focused and singularly invested across every domain in high-end fight, singularly focused and singularly invested on fighting us. He's referring, obviously, to the United States. Now, Kelly added some interesting specifics regarding China's strategic effort to match and pass the U.S. Air Force in terms of air dominance and warfighting sophistication. Quote, China knows that the bulk of any U.S. fighter force that would lock horns in a pure fight was designed for European basing for a Soviet fight. They know it has been utilized and expanded over two decades in a permissive counterinsurgency environment. They know that our fighter force has gotten much older. They know that our fighter force has gotten significantly smaller. They know that there is exponentially more water and distance in this area of operations. He's referring to like the South China Sea. And exponentially less land, less ports, less communications infrastructure, less rail lines, across the board. China's study, actually, of American force structure, its design, its strategy, uh, it's been positioned at, to inform Beijing's defense prioritize, uh, priorities. And Kelly goes on to uh, highlight how, quote, their access, China's access, area denial defense construct, it's specifically designed to exploit the capabilities and the limitations of a NATO force designed tasks to operate outside of NATO airspace, Kelly said. Now, the vast expanse that is the Pacific region, it's fundamental to China's anti-access area denial strategy. Now, Chinese anti-ship missiles, their long-range ballistic weapons, mobile missile launchers, ships, drones, they're all intended to prevent the U.S. military from accessing areas close to China's border. Kelly says it is significantly harder to compete against a nation 
and their own sovereign space. And that's part of the reason why China would like to transition the South China Sea into their own sovereignty. Now, China is relying on being able to fight from its own sovereign territory and leverage every possible advantage. And this is why China is has more actual air power presence in the Pacific region, a circumstance that Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles Brown says needs to change. And this means that the United States will continue to seek more basing opportunities for its growing force of fifth and sixth generation aircraft, as well as stealthy drones. So the bottom line is, as far as the preparations China has been making, a huge part of their strategy when combating the United States in a future conflict is ensuring that they're able to launch missions from sovereign territory. It's territory that China owns, which is why you've heard me talk about this in previous episodes, why China continues to push further into the South China Sea, setting up these man-made islands, producing military airstrips and supply points, radars, etc., all to essentially own the South China Sea. And this is a key part of their natural uh, national defense strategy, because Fighting against a fatal uh, NATO type force would only be benefit, or I should say, China would only be benefited if they were able to launch missions from sovereign territory. That's where one of their greatest strengths is, especially when you're talking about an area in the South China Sea that is primarily ocean with with small islands throughout it. So that's the preparations that China has been making for such a conflict, especially in that air domain. Now, in terms of their strategy and how the U.S. Air Force can essentially prepare itself for such a conflict. Uh, there's a, a journal article from the Indo-Pacific Affairs from Marty Reap, and he writes that Beijing's actions and Washington's reactions, they're going to cause volatility and uncertainty in the South China Sea and Oceania. This power play in the region also entails risk of other nations being caught in the crossfire and forcing them to choose a side. It will be painful struggle for those who try to be amicable towards both Beijing and Washington. Now, either way, tensions and armed conflicts in the region would undermine stability that had previously supported the regional economic prosperity. Now, since 2013, China has been promoting its own version of what we would consider its manifest destiny. And it's been doing this through the development of its Belt Road Initiative, the BRI. You can go back to episode 16 of my podcast. I encourage you to listen to get more context on China's economic goals via the Belt Road Initiative. But in terms of what U.S. Air Force will need to do to maintain and to deter an air dominant China in this region as it furthers its economic goals are going to be laid out in the following things. Uh, number one, the U S air force will have to reapportion assets from current mission sets to areas near China, meaning it's going to have to take its, its, its aircraft, its different units from different parts of the world and focus them, move them literally into this region. Secondly, airmen, these are Air Force airmen, are going to have to gain a better understanding of China, broadly speaking, its culture, history, its perspective, and future global plans. An informed unit is is a better, more effective unit. Uh, third, it's going to have to cross talk with stakeholders. These are I, your you know partner nations in South Asia, Southeast Asia. Now, I can say from my experiences in at least Army Special Forces, this was the bread and butter of what we did 
liaisoning and having relationships, uh, bilateral relationships with these different countries in the region to enhance uh, one another in this effort to uh, be prosperous in this in this region, as well as deterring China from future aggressive actions. If you consider countries like the Philippines, Thailand, South Korea, etc., they all have interest, they all have needs in this region. And as China, uh, with its uh, economic might, continues to grow and become a more aggressive military actor in the region, these countries in this region, they need partnership. They need someone who has um, some weight to throw around, which is where a key part of the Air Force can be able to do is can maintain, continue, enhance that crosstalk with these countries so we can strengthen those relationships. Fourth and finally, the Air Force will need to station more strategic assets and strengthen its cyber capabilities in the theater. If you've listened to me speak about cyber security, cyber threats, uh, which I've spoken through many different episodes in the past, uh, this is a point that uh, will continue, I think, to be reiterated in America's national defense policies, uh, especially in an effort, any type of conflict against China, which itself has a rather diverse and powerful cyber uh, offensive cyber capability. So in summary, the U.S. needs to prepare for a potential war with China in that 2025 to 2032 time frame, again, according to Marty Reap for the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs. Some leaders may choose to ignore the signs of China's design for altering the world's balance of power, but it doesn't erase the China's aggressive behavior in the South China Sea and East China Sea over the past five to 10 years. So these are some areas that the Air Force can focus on to prepare against an aggressive China in, in any type of uh, air domain campaign in a large-scale conflict. Its budget increases has certainly revealed that it's moving in this direction to um, be able to meet China pound for pound in some type of conflict. Uh, according to the just Air Force magazine, the Department of the Air Force requesting $234 billion for its 2023 budget request. And it represents about a $12 billion increase over the $182 billion that was enacted by Congress last year so for the fiscal year 2022, which was one of the largest increases in years. Um, the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, said that the 2023 request, it attempts a, quote, transformational change in the services motivated by China's rapid modernization and taking into account Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I'll just remind you from some of my most recent past episodes on Russia, Russia and China have trained militarily together in multiple exercises. So this is a part of that equation that the Air Force and all the military branches in the United States are considering. Now, I wanted to highlight um, a couple of things that might not be as familiar about the U.S. Air Force. Uh, obviously, my background comes from the kind of special operations background, so I always like to tie that into any of these episodes. And many of you might not know that the Air Force actually has its own special operations command. Obviously, the Air Force is known for its um, its aircraft capabilities and its pilots and etc. However, a, a large component of what they do and has had tremendous impacts on the battlefield and the counterinsurgency um, campaigns over the last 20 years are the Air Force Special Operations uh, individuals who have contributed to and to uh, fighting terrorism in a huge ways. And I'll highlight some of the jobs that this uh, that the Special Operations Command has and what this particular command is looking to uh, adjust its tactics 
if preparing for a conflict with China. So uh, according to Business Insider, the Air Force Special Operations Command oversees highly skilled battlefield commandos who get attached to other special operation teams, merging air and ground power. So these battlefield commandos, they work in four main career fields. One, pararescue men. Those are the elite medics and personnel recovery experts. So for example, if a pilot got shot down behind enemy lines, it's pararescue men could be called in to infiltrate that country and pull that pilot out. Um, second would be combat controllers or CCTs, kind of known for short. They are coordinate airfield operations and close air support. So for example, they would uh, have multiple aircraft flying above them and they're essentially organizing all the different capabilities that those different we call levels of air can provide on the battlefield a third of the tactical air control party airmen these are just or tac p's also known as for short uh, these are commandos who just specialize in calling airstrikes so it could be a, a helicopter platform or a fight or you know a fast moving fighter jet platform that uh, tac p is uh, on the on the radio with saying you know, lay down some munitions on this spot, giving him a grid on a map. That's what they specialize in. And lastly, you have their special reconnaissance operators, which is actually a, one of the newest career fields, and it just specializes in reconnaissance and intelligence gathering. Now, I can say how I mentioned that these commandos will get attached to other special operations teams. This is very typical because whether it's a CCT or a TACP, one of these guys, they will be operating essentially by themselves and they would attach, like, for example, to a, a Army Special Forces team. So there's 12 of us and then we would bring on one of these Air Force commandos to fill a very specific role. For example, if you were operating, um, I'm just going to throw out a hypothetical. You're in Afghanistan and you are clearing a valley with a special forces team or a Navy SEAL platoon uh, and you have multiple different aircraft assigned to your team's mission. In this instance, a combat controller or one of these uh, tact P's would be terrific to have attached to your team to deal to handle essentially all those air assets and to help the team uh, fulfill its mission combining and merging both the the ground efforts that the team is is using whether it's in on foot or in trucks etc and then combining that with the air force power that's essentially what these guys are do now although they are an important part of the special operations command that kind of broad um, umbrella these air commandos are often kind of overlooked because they really support other special operation units you know like i was mentioning combat controllers pararescue men they're will be often attached to Navy SEAL platoons or Army Special Forces detachments. But they do operate uh, on their own teams, but just not as often. I mean, I'll give you an example of uh, how, what they, I should say, what they have done in the in the past you know, 20 years in Afghanistan, for example, according to Chris Osborne, National, national Interest. Uh, during Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, uh, the Air Force Special Tactics Squadron, was used as like forward position targets. So like they would identify or laser paint, light up. There's a couple ways to say it. They would light up these Taliban targets for attacking aircraft. So that this is kind of a counterinsurgency oriented air ground targeting coordination, which is a big mouthful of military jargon, really. And what they're providing is just kind of vital in those early days in the war against the Taliban. And it aligns this kind of counterterrorism missions that are routinely conducted by Air Force Special Operations uh, since following 
the small groups of dismounted special operations or operators assigned to targeting missions, um, such as those relied on during the during the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, they're not likely to be called upon in any great power warfare, given that the small groups of individual airmen might be more vulnerable to a major power mechanized attack. And this is, you see what that we've been doing in Afghanistan and Iraq and how that's really going to be shifting into any kind of conflict uh, against another great power like China. Um, having just individual operators or even a single special forces team um, being used in this capacity would be less likely. Uh, but that being said, as much of the skill set that special operators will need for a great power war does have many similarities to missions envelopes pursued in recent years in Iraq and Afghanistan. Special operators would need to conduct uh, pararescue missions behind enemy lines or engage in high-risk forward reconnaissance operations, uh, perform tactical air controller targeting, and even conduct direct attack air assault ambushes when needed. They will certainly have a, a role to play. For you know, Again, laser painting, what I was talking about earlier, spotting or finding ground targets for fighter jets and bombers to attack a mission. It's arguably arguably uh, even more pressing and important for special operators should they be immersed in a major war campaign. So much of the might require the kind of intelligence mission expertise required of special operators because they may need to conduct these kinds of operations in secret. So forward operating clandestine, you know, reconnaissance missions, you know, you're finding a target, you're destroying a supply line, you're gathering intelligence or launching a target, hit-and-run attacks on high-value enemy areas. All of those mission capabilities performed and practiced by Air Force Special Operators. These squadron warriors can be painted Taliban targets for air attack assets in Afghanistan, and similar yet slightly more protected or hidden operations would likely be in great demand should there be a massive large-scale warfare. So like all the units uh, in the Special Operations Command, they're all adapting their tactics and their approach to what we've been doing in the last 20 years of counterinsurgency and how that can be um, shifted and pivoted into any type of great war competition uh, against an enemy, an adversary like China. Now, as I wanted to highlight a couple of uh, key pieces of technology that the Air Force is, uh, and continues to invest in as far as uh, looking into the future of what kind of conflict, or I should say what the conflict would look like if we were to engage with China on a large scale. And I'm going to highlight both a uh, couple things. One would be drones, and the second would be hypersonic missiles. So let me just uh, touch on drones real quickly. Now, much of the Air Force's legacy drone inventory, these are like the, the Reapers or the Global Hawks, if you've ever read those uh, names in like a New York Times article. Uh, they're operating in combat during the 2000s, 2010s, across uncontested battle spaces, uncontested, I want to highlight that word, uh, battle spaces of the Middle East, where U.S. adversaries could not present significant electronic warfare or counter-air capabilities. But a war with a competitor like China, some 30 years later, it requires more advanced and survivable drones. Uh, according to Joseph uh, Trevthicket for writing for Thrive Rights, uh, war games that the U.S. Air Force has conducted itself and in conjunction with independent organizations continue to show the immense value offered by swarms of relatively low-cost network drones with high degrees of autonomy. In particular, 
Simulations have shown them to be decisive factors in the scenarios regarding the defense of the island of Taiwan against a Chinese invasion. You've heard me talk about the issue of Taiwan uh, in some past episodes, and that island and that focus will continue to be a priority for um, America's military branches as they uh, adjust their tactics and thinking of what a conflict will look like with China. And so now all told, with at least with drones, there is an ever-growing evidence to support the immense and potentially game-changing value of autonomous drone swarms in any potential Taiwan Strait crisis, among other potential conflict scenarios. The U.S. government is now reportedly pushing the Taiwanese military to expand its fleets of unmanned aircraft, among other weapon system purchases that American authorities believe would do the most to bolster the island's ability to at least resist a Chinese invasion. And this all comes as the U.S. intelligence community continues to assess that the Chinese military is aiming to be in a position by 2027 where it would feel confident in its ability to succeed in any future operation to retake Taiwan by force. Of course, U.S. military officials have also said that this doesn't mean that the People's Liberation Army would just automatically launch such an intervention after that point, the point being 2027. But it is their assessment. That's when China would feel confident they could take Taiwan. So it's worth noting that the Chinese military has been heavily investing in a various advanced unmanned capabilities, and that would include technology to enable network swarms, the drones, and has arguably made more progress in fielding platforms than its American counterparts, at least as far as we know. A future conflict in and around the Taiwan Strait could very well see the People's Liberation Army employ its own drone swarms, uh, launched from areas on the mainland or even ships at sea. Now, regardless, concerns are growing that the long-standing potential for a conflict over Taiwan could turn into reality, and it remains to be seen whether the U.S. Air Force or any of its branches, other branches of the military, will take those kind of necessary steps to be able to deploy an autonomous drone swarm if it becomes necessary to defend the island, which looks like it could be a decisive factor in the outcome of such a crisis. So technology like drones that really explode in the early days of uh, the days in Afghanistan from just a pure reconnaissance mission set to more of an aggressive uh, targeting mission. This technology, and you've seen this in the civilian sector, the drones that you could see at Best Buy and how now that almost anybody with the power of a, um, a, a smartphone can deploy a drone to do a whole number of tasks. It's just becoming a huge part of what any type of um, future conflict could look like between the United States and China. And then the last piece of technology I'll highlight is I'm sure you've seen all these the news of hypersonic missiles, particularly being used in Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict currently. But I've talked about this in previous episodes, uh, this piece of technology. And uh, according to Thomas Novelli from Military.com, the Air Force announced that it has successfully tested a hypersonic missile off of California's coast marketing the or excuse me marking the latest development in the US race to catch up to Russia and China in fielding its own weapon on the battlefield. Now, hypersonic missiles high speeds make them harder to track, trace and destroy before hitting a target. You know, inspiring worry for years among US officials and defense industry experts as some of 
assess that adversaries like China and Russia have outpaced America in developing the weapons. So hypersonic missiles, some of which have nuclear carrying capabilities, can be fired from very far distances at sound-shattering speed, uh, has nearly the same effect on a ground target as a conventional bomb, making the use of the prohibitively expensive weapons surprising. It, it sounds... I should say, but that hasn't really stopped the U.S. from prioritizing research and development into the new class of weapons. In 2022, lawmakers approved about $500 million for hypersonic missiles, and that, grown, that number's grown up to $577 million in the 2023 budget proposal. With such a heavy price tag for creating and testing, even eventually fielding those missiles, it is not particularly likely that the Air Force will see them in battle anytime soon. Um, but... At the the having that desire to maintain pace with our near peer competitors, uh, this type of technology, as we've seen in the Russian Ukraine conflict, it's already being used, and there's certainly no doubt that it will find its way into to war once again, and that could be in any type of conflict between the United States and China. So I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode and continuing the modern warfare series, understanding what our military branches are doing as we. Uh, pivot away from the 20 years in counterinsurgency in the Middle East and focus again to that near peer competition with adversaries like Russia, uh, China, or even Iran. And certainly hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker, and this is Brief Before Impact. 